Well, we are in a, a chapter of the Bible today that I jokingly, as Mike was putting together the bulletin and the, the, the blurb for the men's coffee said, you know, Wednesday morning men's coffee, we'll be talking about sin and confession. And he said, oh, that'll really draw a crowd. You know, that, that should get the whole, the whole Legends coffee lobby ready. I said, and I, I'd email back, I said, well, maybe we, we should switch it to lusting after your neighbor's wife. That might, that might draw a bigger crowd because really that's the story that we're looking at, a sobering story in the life of King David. And really chapter 11 of 2 Samuel is another one of those turning points. We've been working as a congregation through the books of First and Second Samuel and we saw how the story began as the story of really Saul and David. And then as we got to 2 Samuel, it, it was the end of the Saul and David story and the beginning of the David story. And up to this point, it's been the rise of the fortunes of King David. God has been blessing him, establishing his covenant with him, granting him victory, uh, expanding even the royal household, the royal family as a sign of blessing and favor on David. And really, chapter 11 is where that turning point occurs, where now there's a series of decisions that David makes, actions that David takes, and a new direction where it's the decline of King David, the decline of his family, and we're seeing, once again, the, the sad effects of sin that hopefully as we read this story, we can enter in humbly and say, God, we are also people in need of grace, in need of deliverance, in need of confessing sin to you and receiving mercy from you. Hopefully we don't stand in judgment of King David in a pious way that says, oh man, I could never be affected by sin to this degree. But hopefully we see a bit of ourselves even in David's story. And there's a caution and a warning here. So we'll see really here now David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah as a turning point in his reign. Um, and, and really the decline of King David beginning. Also, r- really what I'm struck by in this story is sin's far-reaching consequences and effects. I think a lot of times we deceive ourselves into thinking that our sin is a private matter. We'll see in David's story how that sin tends to ripple out. But then there's also a message of hope that comes as we see more about God's steadfast love and his restoring work of forgiveness and grace. So let's begin here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. Uh, I hope you've got your, your antenna up today and you're detecting some problems already here in this first verse. So it's the time of the year when kings go out in battle. Where's David? What's David doing? He's the king, right? He's not going out to battle. In fact, he's sending his commander and everyone else and all Israel and all the servants. It's the time of the year when kings go out. David is not going out. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Once again, another narrative clue there. Now now listen to this next verse. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch... Are you, are you picking this up? Okay, is that where a king should be late in the afternoon, laying on your couch? Okay, just, just look at the picture that the narrator is setting up for us here. We've got the time of the year when kings are out in battle, David remained in Jerusalem. Late in the afternoon, David finally gets his butt up off the couch is really how we're to read this. And he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, as we get into the story here, we're going we're gonna to meet Bathsheba now. We're, we're just meeting her now. Little, now, did, did anyone in the room have a chance to go to the museum in Denver and see the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls exhibit? Okay, Hopefully you got a chance to see that when it was here. One of the features there as you're going through in preparation to actually view the Dead Sea Scrolls, they talk about the type of architecture that existed in the land of Canaan at this time in history. And so really, if you got a chance to see that, you'd see these four-walled houses, a lot of times multiple families sharing uh, just on the other side of the wall from one another, all the same level, and you would use the rooftop for a variety of purposes, including bathing. So this was not inappropriate for this woman to be bathing on a rooftop. Everyone did. And it was, there was privacy because there's really only one higher building in the whole 
community that would be able to see down into people's rooftops happened to be the king's house. So Bathsheba is not doing anything wrong by bathing on a rooftop. This was the architecture of the day. David is the one who's doing something inappropriate by observing her as she's bathing in her own home. Okay, so we're, we're seeing all these clues that David is, has made a series of decisions. Really, it's the beginning of this first lie that David is telling himself when it comes to sin. It's a lie that we've heard, maybe we've even believed. It's the lie that if it feels good, do it. You know, if, it, if, if I have a desire for this, how can it be wrong? So David, you know, he feels like laying on the couch till late afternoon. He doesn't feel like going out into battle like all the other kings do. Let somebody else do that. In fact, now I'd like to take a look around. It, it's satisfying an appetite that I have to gaze on this beautiful woman. And so this first step towards sin is giving into those appetites that are natural to all of us people who are tainted by sin. That's the first lie that David believes and it takes him down a path that draws him deeper in. And so David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. A lot of action verbs in those verses. David is doing several of those actions. He's the one who's inquiring, sending, taking. Bathsheba comes to the king. We'll come back to that. And then he lays with her, it says. Uh, now, Interesting, as I, as I was reading, how did the commentators view Bathsheba? How do, you, know, you, can, you can buy a, a commentary where, where a Bible scholar just dives into one book of the Bible and picks apart every word and every verse and tries to interpret that. Um, do the work yourself first. Dig into God's Word. Read it. Read it in context. Then you can go back and find out what other people have observed and learned in that. One of the things that was concerning to me in the commentaries that I read specifically looking for what do people think of Bathsheba's role in this affair? And really, every commentator I read saw this as like an affair that Bathsheba participated in. I don't see that in the biblical text. I see Bathsheba being, you know, I think if she lived today, she'd be a part of the Me Too, hashtag Me Too movement. I see an abuse of power. I see a king who's in the wrong place misusing his power and authority and I see Bathsheba. How, how is she going to deny a command of the king, come to the palace? And really I see no indication that Bathsheba is complicit in this, in this sin. In fact, I would see the story that parallels this coming in a couple chapters in chapter 13, the story of Amnon and Tamar. I'd see some parallels there where Amnon is really following in his father's footsteps here, where, where Tamar is raped by her own brother. And so I see really, uh, Bath, this, this is a sin that David perpetrates against both Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, in my view. So David is now um, going to this next level of self-deception. You know, he began by convincing himself that if it feels good, do it. And really, I, I, I see there's hints now that David is now telling himself a further lie. No one will get hurt. There'll be no victim here. I can indulge this appetite that I have. It's a victimless crime. I think the modern parallel to this rooftop viewing and the, the sloven, slovenly nature that we see in King David laying on the couch till late afternoon. Gentlemen, I'm going to talk to you specifically. This is a, a sin that primarily affects the men in the room. In fact, there's a whole book series written on this called Every Man's Battle. And there's, a, there's an equivalent book for young men called Every Young Man's Battle. But it's giving into this appetite of lust. It's a distortion of God's good plan. 
when God created Eve for Adam and gave him to her, there was a, a song that burst forth from Adam's mouth there in Genesis chapter 2. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And he saw Eve and there was an attraction and, a, and an appetite and a desire and it was holy and it was good and it was as God had intended. Anytime there's something good, the enemy will come. Satan will come and distort it and twist it and manipulate it and say, well, if this, if this is good, this is really good. If that's, if that's satisfying, this is even better. Give in to those indulgences and, and lusts and desires. And, you know, men, we don't have a rooftop where we can look down on the neighbor who's bathing, but we do have a device in our pocket that's connected to an entire world of lusts and temptation. We've got one sitting on a desk at home, and it might be a window about the size that David was looking at down onto the neighbor's bathrooms. And gentlemen, there's a, there's a challenge that we need to have a person like Nathan the prophet who's going to come a little bit later in the story and hold us to account. And we need to check our own hearts and be at the right place at the right time, not on the couch in the late afternoon when we could get into trouble and believe the lies that David began to feel. No one will get hurt. There's no real victim. It only affects me. I can handle this. Maybe I deserve this. This will make me feel better. All those lies that David is telling himself. But there is a consequence. And in verse 5, the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. There was a little parenthetical statement in one of the verses that we had just read that said that Bathsheba had been in the process of purifying herself from her uncleanness. That's a, that's a clue that she was not pregnant up to this point. So in in the, uh, under, the, under the law, during the time of a woman's menstrual cycle, there was a period of uncleanness, uh, uncleanness and purification rituals that she would go through. And so that would be a clue to us, the reader, that she was not pregnant prior to this meeting with David. And now we hear the only words that Bathsheba speaks in this story. In verse 5, I am pregnant. And now David begins to tell another lie to himself in regards to his sin. I can fix this. Verse 6, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba, who's out at the battle with all the other men of Israel besides David. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Now listen to Uriah's poignant words and imagine how these would land on King David's heart. The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. This is a noble man. And God is speaking through him with a very direct message to King David. You may have lied with my wife, I will not. You may have been indulging yourself and justifying your sin while everyone else is out at the battle where they should be. I won't do that. I won't, I won't uh, even do what is, what is right and acceptable for a husband to do. I won't indulge in that because there's a sacrifice that's required. There's a mission. There's a task. And I've got my eyes fixed on that. And so David's David's sin is now beginning to be 
described by Uriah, pulled out, and there's these haunting words echoing in David's ears as Uriah is focused on the purposes of God. So again, David is still telling himself this lie. I can fix this. Okay, so I couldn't get him to go home, but I've got another idea. So then verse 12, David said to Uriah, well, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So David thought, well, if I can give him a little bit too much wine, maybe I can get him to go home. And really his whole intention was hoping that Bathsheba would not tell Uriah exactly what had happened, and Uriah would come to think that this was his own child. That might be it. I think it's more likely that, you know, if, if I'm right that David was the one who sinned, that when Uriah went home, Bathsheba would say, the king took me to his bed. But that Uriah, again, as a servant of the king, who would believe his story? And everyone would assume, oh, no, no, Uriah, he went home from battle and he spent some time with his wife while the rest of us were out of battle. He's claiming that King David was involved in this, but who's going to believe the message of Uriah? So a lot, of, a lot of the inner thoughts of Uriah and Bathsheba, we don't know. You know, I also wonder, as, as God speaks through the mouth of Uriah to David in those verses we've just read, what had Uriah heard there on the palace steps with the servants of the king. It was no secret in the palace of what had happened. David said, who's, wife, who, who, who's this beautiful woman that I'm seeing? Bring her to me. And so the people in the palace know about David's sin. Bathsheba knows about David's sin, and perhaps Uriah knows about David's sin. That's about to spread. There's going to be more people who find out and discover what's really been going on. And so David's plans to fix this have not worked to this point. He's tried to convince Uriah to go relax, spend some time at home. Well, uh, have some alcohol. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll forget your commitment to battle and to faithfulness, and I can get you to just go home. And one thing will lead to another. That hasn't worked, and so now David's plan turns darker as he's trying to cover up sin. He's adding more sin on top of the sin that he's already committed. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Uriah himself is carrying his own death sentence. Sealed by the king. And he's, we've seen how noble he is. He's not going to sneak a peek at this, at this message that he's bringing from the king to his, the commander of his army. And so he faithfully delivers the message from King David to Joab, the commander of the army. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men Joab is modifying the king's instructions just a bit because really David's plan was a dumb plan. You know, like stick one guy out there all by himself and then have everyone pull back. Obviously, people are going to know that there was a plot to kill Uriah. And so Joab makes this a more plausible deception by placing Uriah among some of David's valiant men. So there's now a group of people involved in this battle plot. Verse 17, the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. This plot has now taken even more lives than Uriah. David's one sin is it's rippling out to actually end people's lives, destroy families. And Uriah, the Hittite, also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger. Now there's a long paragraph here 
of Joab really anticipating the conversation that's going to occur when the messenger from the battlefield arrives to King David. So he's given some coaching and he's saying, here's probably how this is going to go down. Messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king, king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? So, so Joab is remembering a story from Israel's past that you can read about in Judges 9 where it was kind of, you know, it seems like now it, be, it became part of the military strategy of Israel. R- remember what happened back in Judges 9. Don't get too close to the city wall. Our, our, our warriors could be killed by a woman with a millstone just dropping it over the wall. Don't get so near to the wall like they did back in Judges 9. And so this was a principle of war. And Joab is, is anticipating that the king's going to be mad when he finds out that there was a group of valiant men, including Uriah the Hittite, too close to the wall. Really, there's an ir- irony here. There's even a, a, maybe a message that Joab is sending to King David. Just like a woman killed the man in Judges 9, Abimelech, there's a woman in your involvement with her that's a part of the death of these valiant men. And, oh, by the way, Uriah as well. So there's a subtle message that Joab is instructing this messenger from the battlefield to bring to the king. And the last thing he says, when the king asks this question, why did you get so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So he has very clear instructions and the messenger then went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, really giving an explanation as to why they were too close to the wall, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and... Your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you. The sword devours now one, now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage him. You know, it's, it's really just fate that Uriah is dead. It's this inanimate object, the sword. You never know who's going to die on any given day. Oh well. It's sad that Uriah's gone, but life goes on. Be encouraged. Fight on. And in David's mind, really now this sequence of lies that he's been telling himself about his own sin, you know, he's got some self-deceived verification happening now. You know, no one will get hurt I can figure this out. If it feels good, do it. And now it appears to David at this point in the story that, okay, everything, you know, problem solved, everything's going to be okay. I've got Uriah out of the way. My sin will be hidden and undisclosed. And in verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She lamented over her husband. And when the period of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You know, we've been getting clues of that throughout the story, right? But this is the first really explicit statement of how God feels about David's actions. No, David, it's not within your right to add to your harem from the other families of Israel. It's not right for you to kill a man 
to keep up appearances. David is displeased that, or God is displeased that David has really given up the fight against sin. Maybe, maybe you've believed some of the lies that we've seen in King David's thinking here. Maybe you've, maybe you're in a season right now where you're thinking that oh, this is just something I personally struggle with. It doesn't affect anyone around me. This isn't that big of a deal. I can fix this. And at this point in the story, David has not had a good hard look at his own sin, an honest self-evaluation and assessment. And really we're seeing pride, leveraging, strategizing, conniving. It reminds me a lot of Saul. We're seeing this in the man after God's own heart. There's a progression of sin that's described in the New Testament. James chapter 1. On the one hand, this is, this is the, the ideal. This is what it looks like to walk the plan of God, to go after God's good plan. James 1.12 Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So there will be trials, there will be temptations that come. What happened to David is not unique to David. There may be an incidental moment where you're in the wrong place at the wrong time and all of a sudden there's this little tug on your heart, a little whisper in your ear that pulls you in that direction. So there will be trials, there will be temptations that we face and yet there's a a call to remain steadfast under trial, to stay in the fight. Continue to fight against sin. Don't yield to sin. So then in James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. You know, God is not the one that had David stay home from battle. God is not the one that had David laying around all day. God is not the one that caused David to go look down across the neighbor's wall or to summon Bathsheba to his bed. God can't be blamed for the decisions and actions of David filling his own lusts and desires or the temptations that we yield to. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So where does sin come from then? And where does it lead? James 1, 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's where it comes from. Where does it lead? Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's the progression. So there's this, uh, I was talking to, to, uh, our, to my friend Sergio this week the, the, the Spanish word that's used there in James, it's a little better than desire. Uh, we have an old, like I think in your, one of your like maybe old King James version, it might have this word, concupiscence, concupiscencia in Spanish. Okay, it's a, it, you know, or some of, you might have a version that says evil desire. But it's kind of like an appetite. It's a hunger, it's a, there's a mental, internal decision that it lays at the foundation of sin. It's, it's what Eve had when she looked at the fruit and saw that it was good and desired it and she longed for it. There was a decision that preceded the action. I think this blows away the myth of crimes of passion. I don't believe that there are crimes of passion. I don't think that a person who's following after God and his good plan every day all of a sudden just out of nowhere, whoa! Where did, where did that affair come from? How did I just murder this person? There's a, sin is a progression of turning away from God and turning toward other appetites and desires. It's a gradual thing. There's a series of micro-decisions 
that lead to that big kahuna sin like what David did with his neighbors, Bathsheba and Uriah. It'd be like if you're at uh, the King's Super and you know, you, you, f- first there's a little step where you're, you're, you know, you're back in the, in the deli section and you're kind of looking around and there's a sign that says employees only beyond this point. And you're kind of looking around, nobody's watching, and so you just put a toe across the line. And you know, no, no consequences there. Doesn't seem like the video cameras are pointed in my way. Step all the way across that line. Grab a little piece of turkey, sample that. And then you notice there's some stainless steel doors beyond that that you've never really seen what's back there and you're curious. So you take a few more steps and you go past those doors and there's still no employees around. And you notice in the back of the room there's one of these uh, doors with the red alarm on it that says emergency exit only. You're thinking I've never gone through one of those either. And, and step by step, each step further in, eventually you're, you're out behind King Super and whatever mysterious world exists back there, I don't know. That's how sin draws us in. It's not that you all of a sudden one day are in bed with the secretary. There's a series of decisions that lead down that path. There's a turning away from God. It's when we give up the fight against sin. And as James lays it out, this progression of desire to allure enticement, temptation, yielding at each point, making decisions and commitments at each point, rejecting God, failing to hunger and thirst after righteousness, and instead justifying and rationalizing, feeding the other appetites that lure us away and eventually lead to death. So how do you stop that spiral? Okay, well, you know, theologically, number one, We can't stop that spiral. We're in need of God's help. That's why the cross of Jesus Christ exists because he has firmly and decisively defeated sin and its effects. And yet our response to the cross of Christ is not just passive reception. Thank you, Jesus, that you've saved me from sin. I don't have to worry about that anymore. No, there there is a battle against sin that we struggle with in this life until he returns to really firmly establish his kingdom. And at that point, there will be no more desire and temptation to go after anything besides his glory and his majesty. In the meantime, we're called to fight. And the first step of that fight is confession. Our our action. Jesus has done the finished work of, of defeating sin in the grave, of cleansing us, of covering over our sin. The response that we carry out is to confess. And that's our first step of turning from sin and toward God. And God in his mercy in King David's story allows David to be caught in his sin. The worst thing that could have happened would be for this to be the end. And David said, well, you know, the sword, it it devours some and and some days not the other. And it's sad that Uriah's gone. Just go and encourage Joab. Keep on fighting. And by the way, could you send Bathsheba in once she's done mourning? I'm going to add her to my harem just, you know, because I'm such a good guy. I don't want her to be a widow now. If that was the end, it'd be a real tragedy for David to get away with that sin because he would just get sucked further down that trap of sin which leads to death. And instead, chapter 12 begins, the Lord sent Nathan to David. God said, no, sin plus consequences leads to wisdom. And so in my mercy, I'm going to bring Nathan to put his finger on the very sin that you've committed. And so Nathan comes with a lot of tact and creativity. to the king to tell him about his sin and how God feels about his sin and the consequences that are to come. But he uses a creative method, puts it into a story form, a parable. So Nathan came and said to David, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up 
and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So the the analogy here for David as he's hearing this story from Nathan, Nathan's going for, you know, David, you have this entire harem of the royal family, these wives that you've taken. Your neighbor had one wife that he cherished and loved, and you took her. And so the story hits home. David hears this figurative story literally, and it says his anger, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. The guys at Carino's pointed out that really this was almost a prophetic, or or at Legends Coffee, sorry, on Wednesday, pointed out that this was really almost a prophetic message from David's mouth as he speaks of a fourfold repayment. You start to look at the next few chapters here in 2 Samuel. Four of David's children are either their lives end or there's violence against them. Right after David makes this pronouncement. Bathsheba's, his son with Bathsheba dies in this chapter. Then we've got his son Amnon violating his own sister Tamar, another one of David's daughters. Then you have David's son Absalom retaliating by taking Amnon's life. And then just a couple chapters later, Absalom is also killed. So there's almost a prophetic quality to these words that David proclaims in anger here in verse, verse 6. And so then Nathan turns to David and he says, You are the man. The guy said it's not like, uh, you know, what we... There was no, you are dumb man. You, you dumb man. It wasn't in that way at all. This is a, a, a finger pointing condemnation. David, you have anger. You think there needs to be retribution. You are the person in the story. And then he brings, he makes it explicit. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David, you can't hide behind fate or this inanimate object, the sword. You were the one wielding that sword via the Ammonites. You're culpable. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. That's fulfilled in chapter 16, the end of chapter 16. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. There are some choices that David has at this moment. Maybe you've been in this place where your sin has been found out. And those lies that you told yourself and those lies that you believe that got you to this point aren't working for you now. If it feels good, do it. No one will know. It won't hurt anyone. I can handle this. I can fix it. And all of a sudden now, someone's there pointing a finger and you're caught and you're realizing, "Uh uh-oh, I shouldn't have crossed that line, gone through that door, pushed open that emergency sound. There were alarms blaring. 
There were, there were red letters and words, and I kept going deeper and deeper, and I'm really in a mess now. And when God sends that person to you, or that circumstance, and your sin is laid out, there are some options that you have at that point. David had some options. It's just he and Nathan alone. He's the king. He could choose to go further. He's already ended the lives of some of these valiant men in battle with Uriah and Uriah himself. Why not one more? So you can, you can choose the path of attacking when confronted with your sin. You can choose the path of justifying. You know, I mean, she was practically throwing herself at me. Blame shifting. Justifying. Rationalizing. Lots of options that we have when confronted with sin. And if David would have chosen any of those options, he would never have retained that designation as man after God's own heart. And what we see here is a very different response from David that's really the turning point. It's the confession piece. David said simply in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. No, no um, explanation, no rationalization, no denial, no justification, no blaming somebody else. Just owning it. I have sinned against the Lord. Okay, so he sees his sin for what it is. Not that I've sinned against Bathsheba. Not that I've sinned against Uriah. Ultimately, my sin is a turning from God's good plan. I've sinned against him. I've missed the mark of what God had intended and he had intended things for my good and for his glory and I've chosen a different path. I have sinned against the Lord. And immediately, the, the tone of Nathan's message changes upon that confession. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. That's a challenging phrase. Why is this innocent child going to suffer and die because of his dad's sin? We're going to get to that as we read the, the last kind of closing section here um, through verse 25. But before we go to that, just kind of hold that thought. I'd like us to read and really read this as a prayer together. And worship team, you don't have to come at this time. <laughs> this, is a, this is a psalm that David prayed on this occasion. The, the introduction to the psalm, Psalm 51, says this, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is the, this is the prayer that David prayed when confronted with his sin. It's a template for us. As we look at our sin, do we look at it with pride? I can handle this. I deserve this. I can feed. I mean, it's a natural desire that I've got. How could it be wrong? And once we're done believing those lies, we really see our sin for what it is to get to that place of confession, to fix our eyes on the king and his glory and his goodness, to feed that hunger, that hunger and thirst after righteousness, the things that please God. When you're in that place and there's remorse and there's repentance, then a prayer of confession, like here in Psalm 51. David prays, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in my sin did my mother conceive me. 
Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. It goes on. There's a reason that there's several songs that you may hear as we're reading that Psalm 51. This is, this is a, a, a psalm of confession and repentance. It's Really, confession is the first step of repentance is what I would say. Confession is when you've been going down the path of sin and you stop and God stops you and then you admit, God, I've been walking away from you. And that's that first turn away from sin and toward God. And this is a prayer here in Psalm 51 that includes humility, utter dependence upon God, being done with pretending and justifying, trying to fix it on our own, reorienting of appetites and priorities in a way that pleases God. So David confesses and immediately there's a a, a word from Nathan that says, the Lord has put away your sin. Now, does that mean that when God has forgiven us, cleansed, he's begun that process of cleansing us as David prayed in Psalm 51, he's renewing a right spirit, he's restoring joy, does that mean that whatever past sins we've done will have no further effect? Sadly, that's not the case. You know, if you indulged in certain activities in college, it could affect your brain cells going forward, right? If you, if you have an affair in your marriage, it will have repercussions in your marriage. could end your marriage. Okay? If you have gone through those warning signs and gone further than you had intended, there could be lasting impacts on your life and on those around you. There are still dead people from this story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Those valiant men who died alongside Uriah are not coming back. There's families that have been impacted by David's sin. In fact, there's a, there's a baby boy who's about to be impacted. And that's what we're going to wrestle with here in this, in this last section. Verse 15, Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not eat, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he, asked, when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then a servant said to him, What is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Okay, so the, the very valid question, why did this child suffer from a sickness from the Lord for a week and then have, have his life end because of David's sin? This is an innocent child. 
You know, the first answer to that question, that's a question in, in theological terms, the word is theodicy. And that's basically when we put God on trial. And we say, okay, God, you need to justify your, your actions here. Okay, because God, you claim to be all-knowing, all-loving, and all-powerful. We've got a problem because of innocent suffering. So God, you need to justify yourself. And if you really want to dig into theodicy, we've got a book of the Bible devoted entirely to that topic. It's called the book of Job. And this is a story about innocent suffering. And really, the end of the story is, is God talking to Job in chapter 38. And I'll just give you a little clue. God re- begins his response to this question of how can you be all good, all loving, and all powerful, and yet the innocent suffer? He begins that by saying to Job, remind me, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Really, the answer to the justice of God is to say, his ways are not our ways. He is the sovereign God. You are God and I'm not. When I look at this story of of a baby dying, suffering and dying for the sins of his dad, I go, that is not just but then right away I go, you know, but you're God and I'm not. So I think that's, that's a safe place to begin with a question that's a very valid question that we wrestle with. A couple other things that I would, I would see in this, in this story about the son of Bathsheba and David. One thing is God's eternal perspective. What we see as extreme pain God calls light and momentary. There's an analogy that, that if you have either delivered a baby or had a wife deliver a baby, there's an analogy there of nine months of discomfort, morning sickness, indigestion, all that good stuff that comes along with it, back pain, mentally preparing for one really horrible day of labor pains, and even an epidural isn't going to help you a whole lot, ladies. You, you probably know that more, more than I do. But the reason you can endure that is because you know at the end of that light and momentary struggle, even though it's a whole torturous day, there's going to be the joy of holding that baby and that new life. And so you can kind of mentally psych yourself up to go through something really painful and hard to get to the end. Or maybe you're a marathon runner or even just a 5K. And you think, you know, this is going to hurt, but at the end it's going to feel good that I achieved this. I'm going to get a medal, take a selfie, whatever it is that motivates you to do that. I, I don't know why you would run unless something dangerous is chasing you, but more power to you. And so there's that endurance that pushes through to the end. Well, in God's eternal perspective, when we come to him and go, how, how could you, Lord, end the life of this innocent baby. I hear God saying, oh, that's right, you, you mortal temporal beings. I forget how, how limited your view is, not that he forgets. But he looks at us in the same way that we would look at a child who's saying, oh, how much longer till we get there? It's been 20 minutes already. And we're kind of chuckling and going, yeah, it's, it's a 30-minute drive, you'll be fine. For God in his eternal perspective, in light of eternity, this life, God's word says, is like grass fading, flowers withering, like a mist that melts away as the sun comes up. And that eternal life is is so much more real, substantial, and lasting than this life. So in God's eyes, despite our abhorrence of this story, God doesn't see that seven days of sickness or the death of a, an innocent child in the same way we do. He has an eternal perspective. I think what God is doing in this story is he is ensuring that David is a man after God's own heart. That King David's heart is shaped to see through God's perspective. God the Father knows what it is to have an innocent son suffer for the sins of others. And David's about to get a picture of that as his own innocent son suffers 
for the sins of someone else, namely himself. God is making David a man after his own heart. Can God alter sin's natural consequences? Can he step in miraculously and intervene? Yes, he does. And he can and he does. Praise be to God. And so David was praying. And he's fasting and he's weeping before the Lord. He knows what Nathan has pronounced. And yet he has this hope that just as God relented from his anger toward David, said, you will not die for your sin, but your son will. That perhaps God in his mercy and grace will intervene in this incident with his son. And so when, when we have sinned and there are lingering effects of sin, by all means, after we've confessed and turned to God, continue to pray and cry out and say, God, remove the natural consequences of my sin and those that it has affected. And there's times that God in, in his infinite sovereignty and wisdom will work in those situations. So it's good to come with that childlike faith to him and trust in him. But then also to trust in him that even as sin ripples out and it affects others, holiness and righteousness works the same way. And so now as we walk in that new life, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, walking in the Spirit as God leads us and directs our steps, that we can begin to layer new decisions and new actions onto our family tree that will also ripple out and affect others. That's the good thing about holiness. When, when the sick came to Jesus, the woman with the issue of blood, for example, in the midst of a crowd, reaches out and touches Jesus' garment, her uncleanness did not transfer to Jesus as you would expect from reading the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus' holiness is so powerful that his holiness radiated out and healed her. And that's the way that walking with Jesus affects our lives, the lives of those around us, the people that we know, other families. Righteousness and holiness is even more viral than sin and unrighteousness. I had an assignment in seminary to make a, a spiritual genogram, which is a, basically a, a pictorial representation of my family tree, but looking specifically at how the gospel had affected my ancestors, my siblings, cousins, aunts and uncles. That was quite a telling assignment. I encourage you to do that for yourself, is to write out, you know, when, at what point in your family tree did the gospel get in there? And to look back at abuse, alcoholism, brokenness, and to see the gospel begin to affect my family tree at the level of my parents. And then how that affected each of us, their children, our children, even going back up to the, the generation of, of my parents, to their siblings, grandparents, cousins, once the gospel gets in there, get ready. There's going to be some good things happening. And so there, you know, no matter what background you come from, how sin has affected you, the sins of others in your family has affected you, as you walk faithfully with Christ, as you allow him to do his work of restoration in you, that also will now affect future generations and others in your family. Righteousness is powerful. God is at work. And then finally, the last two verses here, future hope that comes as there's a new turn to, toward God and away from sin. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah, which means a friend of God. Because of the Lord. So David gave his son a name and, and the Lord gave his son a name. He's both Solomon and Jedidiah, the friend of God. And there's future hope, not just for Israel, but also for David and his family in this work of redemption. There's a process that begins at the cross of healing and restoration. And our part in joining in that participating is both fighting against sin and confessing our sin so that we can continue to receive that healing and God can continue to work through us and bring the good news to others through our lives. 
Let's go to him in prayer today. Maybe uh, as, as we've been speaking, God's been doing a Nathan the prophet on your heart and putting his finger on that sin issue that you've rationalized, justified, tolerated too long, and it sucked you further in. And today's that day to pray the prayer that David prayed in Psalm 51, a prayer of humility and confession, to lay that before God and say, I'm done going down that path, and I turn toward you in this issue. Let's stand together and go before him as we, as we pray a prayer of confession. God, we thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you that in your mercy you allow our sins to be revealed and uncovered. That we don't continue down that path of heaping sin on sin and being sucked further in toward death, yielding to those desires that are base and instinctual. God, thank you that you put a new heart within us as your sons and daughters. Thank you that for those who are in Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin, but now we're slaves to righteousness. Sin is no longer our master. You are the one that leads and guides and directs our steps. And so today, we, we fully, as, as, a, as a community, as a church family, we turn our backs on sin. We turn our faces toward you, toward your glory, your righteousness, your holiness. We confess our sins to you. Lord, you, your word commands us to confess our sins to one another to receive healing in James 5. So Lord, today we pray that we would have that level of vulnerability with one another as, as David did with Nathan and the courage that Nathan had to point out the sin and the willingness that David had to not attack or to excuse but to confess. Pray that that would be a characteristic of this community of believers right here in the room. That we'd be honest in our struggles, that we would pray for one another, confront the sins that, that need to be pointed out, and that it would lead to repentance and confession, that we would be vessels that you can use, holy and acceptable and pleasing to you. God, we thank you for your work in each of our lives as individuals and how that affects our families and future generations. Give us that excitement and joy today of seeing how the gospel changes lives and it ripples out. And we pray that you would make that the reality this week, that we'd spread good news with our words and with our actions, with our love, with our humility and our confession. In Jesus' name.